DiscerningHearts.com presents Regnum Novum, bringing forth the new evangelization through Catholic social teaching with Deacon Omar Gutierrez. Deacon Gutierrez studied theology at the Franciscan University of Steubenville and at the Angelicum in Rome. He holds a master's degree in theology from the University of Dallas. He has worked for the church in various capacities, including as a teacher and administrator, and is currently on the faculty of the School of Faith. His expertise includes Catholic social teaching, and his writings on the subject have appeared in several national Catholic newspapers and periodicals. He's the author of The Urging of Christ's Love, The Saints, and The Social Teaching of the Catholic Church. Regnum Novum, bringing forth the new evangelization through Catholic social teaching with Deacon Omar Gutierrez. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Talk to us about the principle of subsidiarity. The principle of subsidiarity fits within the larger picture because it comes as a kind of damper, if you will, to universal destination of goods. And as the, the middle of the five principles, it's really the core principle, I think, of, of all the other ones. The fact that it's ignored so much in most of the social justice teaching is really pretty unfortunate. But you have the common good, which we discussed. You know, it's the, the sum total of social conditions that allow for people to reach their human fulfillment more easily and more fully. And for the Catholic, that's going to be sanctity. Okay? So the sum total of social conditions that allow us to be saints more easily and more fully. And then the second one, universal destination of goods, is the idea that the things of this world, which God has given us, are meant for everybody and not just a few. And that part of our job as Catholics and Christians, that all the goods of this earth which God has given us um, have been given for everybody and not just a few. And then part of our obligation as Catholics is to make sure that if we've been gifted by God with wealth or with means, to share those with as many people as possible. In other words, that the point of having stuff is not to have stuff, to make sure that the, that stuff is distributed well. Now, at this point, then, we, we start to get those questions about, okay, you've used the phrase distribution of wealth. What do you mean? Isn't that socialism? Isn't that some, you know, statist approach to, to economics, etc.? Mm-hmm. Well, no. The, the church has been very clear that socialism is not the way to go. It's, so then when the church says distribution of wealth, what does it mean? And who's in charge of it? Well, we are. We, the people, the citizens, the, the average person on the street, the person with wealth, they're responsible primarily with that distribution. And subsidiarity is the principle that is brought in at this point, therefore, to express that idea. Subsidiarity is the notion that whatever issue it is, in the, the social issue, that that social issue ought to be addressed at the lowest possible order or as close to that issue as possible. So give me an example. If you have homelessness, right, it's best that the people of that community deal with the homeless person in their community uh, rather than having, for example, say the federal government coming in and trying to make blanket um, uh, policy for how to deal with the homeless because each situation is different, each community is different, the amount of resources of the communities are different, so it's better for the local authority to handle it better than some distant authority or higher order of authority. This is precisely what Pius XI says in Quadragesimo Anno on the 40th anniversary of Rome Novarum in paragraph 23. He says this, Just as it is gravely wrong to take from individuals what they can accomplish by their own initiative and industry and give it to the community, 
so also it is an injustice and at the same time a grave evil and disturbance of right order to assign to a greater and higher association what lesser and subordinate organizations can do. For every social activity ought of its very nature to furnish help to the members of the body social and never destroy and absorb them. Mm-hmm. And what he says basically is, just as it's wrong for somebody to come in and take your property without your, your wanting them to, mm-hmm. it's wrong for somebody to come in and take from you your responsibility. Your rights and responsibilities belong to you and go hand in hand. If they take away your responsibility, that's not a first further step, far further step for them to take away your rights. You mentioned order. Ideally, that's a, a grouping of individuals, not just one individual. Right. So the most common order would be the family. Precisely right. That family, which is that fundamental of society, fundamental cell of society, is that basic association, which is to help society. So again, in the case of, let's say, the homeless person, where is this man's family? Go there first to see if they, they will, they, they might not know where he is. They may want to know where he is. They may, be, they may love the opportunity to be able to help that man and, and get him into their family again and, and care for them. So go to the family first. Laws and policies that help keep families together and help empower families to help themselves are the best policies to go. After the family, then you go to other uh, orders. But here's the other interesting thing about the social teaching is it it doesn't assume necessarily that when they talk about orders of authority that they mean necessarily government. It can also be other associations, not just the family, but also the parish. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The parish can be an order, an association, which can take charge of of a community, a parish, a geographical boundary, right? Uh, over which they have some authority, over which they have some interest. And so you can go to the parish in this local area where the homeless man finds shelter and say, well, what can the parish do for this individual? Uh, And not just the parish. You also have rotary clubs or lions clubs, women's associations, all sorts of different groups and associations, uh, shelters, all of them which can be run privately by churches or by private associations, which can help serve the society, help serve that community. Those are the people we should be going to first. And, and the other thing that subsidiarity encourages uh, is this notion of cooperation. We started our whole discussions on, on social justice, of course, with Christ, Jesus as being the, the number one thing we ought to be shooting for, the one person that we ought to be shooting for and the person that, that motivates our action. And the second point we made was uh, communion versus opposition. We have this tendency to think of you know, the local government and the federal government as being in opposition. And to a certain degree, that's true. And certainly the founding fathers of the United States um, wanted it to, to be clear that there was a separation between federal powers and state powers, as well as city powers and county powers, etc. Um, but subsidiarity presumes or encourages us to understand that the, the higher orders of authority, the federal government or the state government, will help in cooperation with families with local associations, with city officials, will, in cooperation with them, help them solve the social issues they find most important. At its very, very heart, the seeds of this are found in the gospel. They are found in the scripture, whether it's the teachings of St. Paul Mm. when he speaks about the union that, uh, that occurs within the authority even of that central unit the family, or even of the modeling of the holy family right. and how they engaged in 
living with each other as demonstrated in the Gospels. Yeah, the, I mean, the, the, the ancient view of the relationship of the individual within society was based on, you know, first their relationship with family, with kin, with clan, or tribe, uh, and then that relationship with the rest of the social community. Um, and this is precisely why in, in, in Middle East and in ancient times, and unfortunately we've lost a lot of it today, is that great emphasis on hospitality that when somebody comes to your door, that you open your home to them, you feed them, you take care of them, precisely because it could be you next. We have that responsibility as individuals or as groups, as, as families, to help those who are in need, who come to us. Um, and uh, as time has gone on, it wasn't until really the Enlightenment when you had a figure like Jean-Jacques Rousseau and his social contract who started to say that in order for humanity to get past our own foibles and problems, uh, we had to create well-ordered societies, state uh, structures that would help run the society. And, and Jean-Jacques Rousseau was writing in the late uh, 18th century, you know, less than 50, 60 years later, you have Karl Marx who's saying that state must run everything. And that state has to run all aspects of society. You know, Marx believed his his plan would solve human sin, would solve human alienation, but that's why his approach is so incompatible with Christianity. The responsibility cannot lie primarily with the state because the state is a construct that ought to exist to help the lower order, help make us able to reach sanctity. Sanctity has to be a, a personal relationship, a personal quest, and not some organized institutional reality. You have to give the person the opportunity to exercise their free will. Yes, exactly. In essence, I'm recalling the, the story that our Lord Jesus spoke of in the Gospels of the man who was sleeping and the banging on the door came and someone wanted bread. Yes. And that it was a given. Yes, absolutely, he must get up and respond. It was just an assumed type of thing that you do help your neighbor. And also you see in the scriptures, which is the basis for Catholic social teaching, yes. that response of community responding to the needs of those who are calling out for assistance. Yeah, exactly. This is why when we talked about look, look judge, act by, from, from John the 23rd, you know, where are you looking? You look first within your family and then at the person across the street and and, and down the street in the neighborhood and on that block, whatever. You look at, at those persons who are right in front of you. This is the thing that, that the social teaching wants us to understand, and I think this is where, as you're saying, it sort of ties in with the Gospels. Christ's great commandment to us is to love as he loved us, and he didn't love us corporately. One of the wonderful things about when you think about the, the, pair, the, the, the multiplication of, of loaves, right, um, when, so, when Christ saw that the people were hungry, he was moved right, to try to feed them, and, and he did. And, and what's, uh, the wonderful phrase in the scriptures, they, they all had their fill, and there was only enough left over exactly for the 12 bushel baskets, which has its own you know, uh, imagery. But everybody was, everybody was fed to the point exactly where they needed to be fed. You know, it wasn't some blanket feeding of a mass of people. Christ saw the individual needs of each person. And likewise, we're called to have to try to meet that need, which is why blanket <laughs> policies that come from a, a distant authority cannot possibly 
meet the needs of the individual where they're at because they don't take into account the individual. And there are practical ramifications of all this as well. And John Paul II actually points them out in, in his great encyclical, Centesimus Annus, on the 100th anniversary of Rerum Novarum. And this is what he says. He says, by intervening directly and depriving society of its responsibility, the social assistance state leads to a loss of human energies and an inordinate increase of public agencies, which are dominated more by bureaucratic ways of thinking than by concern for serving their clients, and which are accompanied by an enormous increase in spending. Mm. Sound familiar? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. This is John Paul II in a social doctrine encyclical saying, when there's this huge insistence on the state, the social assistance state taking over uh, what the individuals and, and local uh, authorities ought to be doing, uh, what happens is you have bureaucracies that are more concerned with efficiency than they are with the needs of the clients, the individual. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, you have an increase in spending and probably wastefulness as well. And this also goes to, by the way, um, uh, the question of the responsibility of the state and the, and the responsibility of the citizen. Uh, Franz Jagerstadter. Um, who was an Austrian uh, during World War II, was presented when uh, the Germany, the Nazi Germany, wanted to annex Austria. His town and all of Austria was presented with voting for or against this. Franz Jagerstadter was the only man in his village who voted against it. And one of the reasons he gave was um, the state, the, the National Socialism Nazi state, wants to take over social assistance. They want to take over the responsibility of families and local communities. And he said, that is fundamentally wrong. It's our responsibility to do so. So not only did he not vote for it and, it, and, and was very vocal against it, mm-hmm. but Franz Jagerstadter went out of the way to start uh, of soup kitchens and, and, and local, air, uh, local assistance so that they could start serving the people there in his village instead of giving it over to the Nazis. So Franz's point is simply that uh, subsidiarity is something that ought to be uh, held fast to. And, and as people have complained in the past about the writings of Paul VI and, and, or, or uh, John Paul II even and, and the, the teaching of the social, uh, the social teaching of the church, one of the complaints is that the, the church is requesting international, in certain cases, authorities for um, international labor and other things. And Pope Benedict XVI talks about this in, in Caritas and Veritate, how he, he says there should be an international authority to, to make sure that labor laws are being followed well from country to country. Um, and some people were shocked that he should say such a thing. I mean, isn't that the definition of a kind of statist uh, um, uh, approach? Um, but in that next sentence, Pope Benedict XVI says, as all the popes have said, uh, but the principle of subsidiarity must always be respected and held sacrosanct. We'll return to Regnum Novum with Omar Gutierrez in just a moment. This is Chris McGregor. The work of discerning hearts could not continue without your prayers and support. Please consider making a tax-deductible gift. Click Donate at either DiscerningHearts.com or inside the Discerning Hearts free app. Your generous support will allow us to continue our podcast for those on the discerning journey. Thank you and God bless from all of us at Discerning Hearts. Litany of Humility O Jesus, meek and humble of heart, hear me. From the desire of being esteemed, deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being loved, 
Deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being extolled. Deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being honored. Deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being praised. Deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being preferred to others. Deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being consulted. Deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being approved. Deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being humiliated. Deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being despised. Deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of suffering rebukes. Deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being calumniated. Deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being forgotten. Deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being ridiculed. Deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being wronged. Deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being suspected. Deliver me, Jesus. That others may be loved more than I. That others may be esteemed more than I. That in the opinion of the world, others may increase and I may decrease. That others may be chosen and I set aside. That others may be praised and I unnoticed. That others may be preferred to me in everything. That others may become holier than I, provided that I become as holy as I should. Jesus, grant me the grace to desire it. Amen. Hello, my name is Deacon Omar Gutierrez, and I want to ask you to support Discerning Hearts in a special way. We, Chris McGregor, the board, and I all know that not everyone listening can help financially. We know we have listeners from all parts of the world, and we have made a commitment since the beginning to make the truths shared through Discerning Hearts totally free. So while you may not be able to contribute financially, what you can do is certainly pray, but also give us positive reviews on whatever platform you use to listen to us. If it's iTunes, Android, Stitcher, Spotify, however it is that you get these podcasts, or if you're on YouTube and you like our videos, please give us a good rating and write a review. The more good ratings and reviews we get, the higher our profile, and the more listeners will discover us, listeners who may have the means to contribute in the future. Please consider rating us and writing a positive review today. We now return to Regnum Novum with Omar Gutierrez. Let's talk about the other extreme of this, yeah. that the church seems to me gets crushed in mm-hmm. between these great bigs. One is the big government, and the other, of course, is the big business. Yes. So often is given to Chesterton as the one who was able to articulate it, but he was basically pulling from Leo Thirteenth, wasn't he? about the concerns of the two dynamics of the bigs. Leo XIII and Pius XI, and, and by the way, Pius XII says this explicitly in his radio messages, that just as big government is, is a bad idea for the reasons that John Paul II says, and there's waste and bureaucracy and the rest of it, big business is a bad idea too. Uh, big business cannot provide for the local community in the same way that a, a local business can, precisely because... Big business or the the businesses are making blanket policy decisions that cover the entire company that may not, in point of fact, take into account the needs and the wants of the local community. So you take something like Walmart, and I don't have any 
you know, great beef against Walmart necessarily, but there is a perfect example of a business which has brought into certain communities goods which that community simply doesn't need, has never needed, and will never need. But because of Walmart's business plan, they've been able to bring in very cheap and, and a wide variety of goods that people now, because it's available to them, have convinced themselves they need because they see it on TV or they see it in the next town or whatever. They, they spend their money, they spend their goods, they they they're convinced of these things that they know they never needed, and so they're wasting money on things that they could be using to help the homeless guy on the street. That local that sense of that local community, that that local business uh, that knows their customers well, that knows the needs of their customers, that can get what they want here, that can get what the community really desires. That's better for the community than a, a big business somewhere else making determinations for what that community wants and desires. At the heart of it, it's relationship. Exactly. And that's a reflection of the Trinity. And that's a reflection of the Trinity and a reflection of what we've been talking about. The number one point is relationship with Christ Jesus. It's about relationship. And if you don't have that, now that's not to say that you know the local manager of the Walmart can't have a relationship with the people there. And if they want a certain good, he can go get it from some other store or order it. Or, and and that's, they, that certainly happens. Uh, but there's a whole host of goods and, and products uh, that uh, Walmart provides that are not needed or... Uh, one can point this out, that uh, this proliferation of, of Chinese goods, for instance, that come from a nation that uh, is, is, as everybody knows, is, is using slave labor, ch child labor, is subjugating its people, a one-child policy, oppressing the, the women and the children. There is less freedom there, et cetera, et cetera. They're able to produce goods at a cheaper rate, and, and we are, in a sense, forced to buy them from places like Walmart because they're because they're making blanket decisions that the local community can't, can't input on. There's the concern because now we want to have the lower price. We want to have the lower, uh, we want to be able to get those goods. And so we go to those who will provide that at the lower price. It may come from, uh, say, China. Right. But in essence, we're encouraged to spend because we're feeding the bigger machine that keeps getting bigger and bigger. And you end up having an economy that ends up growing so big yes. that the weight of a potential collapse crushes <laughs> the citizenry yes. that's been trying to feed it continually. Exactly. And this is why, this is precisely why, Chris, questions of economics are really so important because you have economic theories you know, people's eyes roll in the back of their heads when they hear economics because they think figures and graphs and, th and everything. And that is partly the fault of, of bad economics to make it a sort of mathematical game. But really economics, as Chesterton will say and, and others, economics is the, simply the study of human action within the field of, of limited or, or uh, scarce goods. That's all it is. It's a branch of philosophy. And what you think about the human person and what you think the human person needs is going to color the way you approach economics. Um, and so you had Karl Marx who approached economics in a very significant way, but you have other economies short of, of socialism or short of, short of Marxism uh, that really believe that the point of human existence is consumption, is, is, is buying stuff. On another aspect of this, especially in the heartland of America, which this program is emanating from, yes. we have the question of how big is big farming oh, yes, uh, yeah. of companies coming in and uh, 
who are trying, they would say, to be able to provide food and goods mm-hmm. in a the most efficient, economical way to the citizenry, right. buying up land and mass producing and taking away the ability of the smaller farmer yeah. to be able to continue on with a legacy that's been passed down to him from generation to generation and being able to produce goods that he feels serves his local pop populace. Exactly right. This is a very, I'm glad you brought it up, this is a very important issue because the argument from the other side is going to say, well, look, you can talk all you want about what's nice and what's good and what the people need, but the fact of the matter is that cheap eggs saves people's lives. Cheap chicken, cheap beef saves people's lives. That's what's most important. And, so, and, and the fact that we're providing it with mm-hmm. these huge farms is okay. The answer to that is the age-old question, does the end justify the means? What means are you using to provide the cheap eggs, cheap chicken, and beef, etc.? There was a film I watched which um, was about the food industry. I'm not going to mention the name of the film, and the, the, the treatment of animals is not really something that, that motivates me or gives me very emotional. They're animals. They're not mm. human people. But what really disturbed me was the way the farmers were treated by the corporate farming machine. You have individuals, say chicken farmers, for instance, who are forced to buy very expensive equipment in order to uh, house as many chickens as possible in a a, a small space. They have to block out the sun so the chickens don't know what time of day it is. They have to have a, a very expensive air circulation system as a result. They have to have a certain kind of uh, bedding on the floor of the of the chicken house so that the diseases don't spread. They have to have a very expensive system of delivering food. They, all these expenses are built up, and all those are taken on by the farmer so that the farmer is millions of dollars in debt in order to be able to have this contract of raising chickens for the larger company, a contract which that company can end after any violation whatsoever, leaving the farmer in in debt they will never, ever be able to get out from under. That's unjust. There's just no two ways about it. It's simply unjust. That's akin to slave labor. There's nothing just about that. And in in the name of getting cheaper chicken, we're allowing that to happen. There's no reason for that. Uh, or there's a, a case of uh, a, a gigantic meat processing plant on the East Coast uh, where uh, knowing full well that they cannot allow a union to come in because it would raise costs for them, they bus workers from uh, about a 100-mile radius around the meat plant. Meanwhile, the, the local community, the town in which the, the meat plant exists, is destitute and barren because there's no jobs. And the reason there are no jobs is because those people tried to unionize and the meatpacking plant said, well, we're not going to let you, and so we're going to find work elsewhere. We're going to find laborers elsewhere. And amongst some of the laborers they find are those from other countries. They advertise for laborers in Mexico and in other Central American countries, and those workers come up, promise of, of, of work, and they're paid less, they're not giving benefits, um, and then, in order to appease the uh, federal government, that company therefore hands over some illegal immigrants to the federal company when it's their own fault for for those people coming in in the first place. Um, uh, in order to appease the federal government, I mean, this is all of this in the name of getting us cheap pork, cheap chicken, cheap uh, beef. Uh, it would be much better for us to control our desires for uh, beef than to allow injustices like injustices like that to continue. 
Some may say that's a prime example of big business gone bad. Yes. What's happened in the Central American countries is an example of how big government goes bad. Mm. And i.e. that person comes to America because in his local community, the situation is such where it is so deprived because of the oppression of a government and they are living in a poverty that they're seeking to come up. Mm -hmm. And big government, i.e. the United States, giving the big government Central American country funds, it does not trickle down to that impoverished farmer who is seeking some way to feed and care for his family. Some would say that the principle of subsidiarity would have you, instead of giving the money to the government, mm-hmm. giving it to that farmer, giving it to that exactly. small community so that it, in a micro way, can build up um, like a plant. No, you're exactly right. And and we've been talking about the, the, the sins of big, big business and, and big government. Uh, but let's also be clear. I mean, this is why the, this whole point of opposition and, uh, and communion I'm not trying to pit one person against another or, or one thing over another. It, mm-hmm. The great, wonderful thing about being Catholic is you have this sort of both-and approach to things. Mm-hmm. The Church understands that a free market system is a better system. In fact, John Paul II says this. Benedict XVI assumes a free market system in Caritas and Veritate. Now, it depends on what you mean by free market, obviously, and people have their different definitions. But in the case of, say, giving aid to third world countries, which Paul VI says we ought to do in Popular and Progressio from 1967, when we give aid to countries, the question is who we're giving aid to. Are we giving aid to their federal governments, mm-hmm. right, which then make policy decisions that don't meet the needs? Or do we give them aid to allow them to start setting up free market systems so that they too can start benefiting in the global uh, trade and, and, and free trade with other local neighboring countries, et cetera? Uh, there have been a number of books written on this, and the principles of colonialism, for instance. Pope Paul VI says in Populum Progressio that while certainly there are certain sins of colonialism, the oppression of people and, and racist attitudes, the fact is that colonialism has, has been able to bring principles of the free market, rule of law, constitutional government, the rights of the individual person, the dignity of the human person, to countries, to areas where those ideas had been foreign. So you look at a place like India, for instance, which has the fastest growing economy right now, mm-hmm. maybe just that, just after China, is exporting their intelligence to the United States and to Great Britain and to other places. And all of it a result, as the Prime Minister of India said recently, as a result of this exportation of ideals and ideas and, and that dignity of the human person, which had been foreign to some of the ideology that was there before. Thank you, Omar. Oh, thank you, Chris. You've been listening to Regnum Novum, bringing forth the new evangelization through Catholic social teaching with Deacon Omar Gutierrez. To hear and or to download this conversation, along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission, And if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about DiscerningHearts.com and join us next time for Regnum Novum, bringing forth the new evangelization through Catholic social teaching with Deacon Omar Gutierrez.